some people love Shakespeare, others not so much. But a Shakespeare adaptation is always a good time. Constellation Theatre at 14th and T is featuring a musical called Desperate Measures. It's based off of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, but it's set in the Wild West. A gunslinging nun teams up with a sheriff and a saloon dancer to save her brother. Buy tickets now at constellationtheater.org. The show runs through March 17th. Once again, that's constellationtheater.org. Today on CityCast DC, DC Attorney General Carl Racine has delivered yet another blow, yet another blow to Dan and Tanya Snyder as they apparently prepare to sell the Washington Commanders. I'm here with sports journalist Kevin Blackstone and our pal, Greater Greater Washington's Dan Reed, to talk about how the latest investigation details could affect the commander's sale. And we're also talking election results in Maryland and Virginia and about a wonky D.C. policy about sidewalks. Today is Friday, November 11th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast D.C. So we will get to Snyder in a second, which I feel like is the actual motto of the Washington, D.C. media for the last 22 years. We'll get to Snyder in a second. That's the juicy stuff. But uh, let's talk first about the bigger picture, which is there was an election Tuesday, as you may recall, and it's still going on in some places, but those places don't include Maryland and Virginia. And we talked about D.C. a bit uh, yesterday. So let's talk about what happened in the suburbs. Dan, you are, in fact, are you still a Silver Spring resident? That's right. I live in Silver Springs, though uh, I joke I can see D.C. from my house. Well, you will soon be able to see D.C. from your house through a haze of (laughs) cannabis smoke Um, because weed, recreational use of cannabis, marijuana, was legalized in a referendum uh, on Tuesday. That's right. And I think the surprising thing about it is it happened with so little noise. I don't remember seeing any ads for or against it or any yard signs or anything like that. It seemed like a much bigger deal when the state legalized medical marijuana a few years ago. Even though a vastly smaller number of people will have to jump through a vastly greater number of hoops to take advantage of that. Exactly. It's uh, as if people have decided to give up about fighting weed. It's here. It's, it's normal now. It, you smell it everywhere in Maryland already. Okay, but, the, not legal yet. but practically speaking, you should not take out a lease on a storefront to operate a uh, weed business quite yet because they actually haven't said or developed any sort of framework for how they're going to, ha- like whether there will be like stores you can walk into and buy. The only thing that's changed is it is n- no longer a crime to carry up to 1.5 ounces. There's no framework for how to uh, sell it, et cetera. It'll be a little, for a time at least, like in DC where there's sort of weird loophole uh, things. Is there a, an expectation that they're now gonna get into the nitty gritty of how to like regulate stores? I think that's the next question, right? So the law that's been passed come July 1st, you'll be able to hold weed, you'll be able to grow up to two plants in your house, but you won't be able to buy or sell it yet. And so that's the next conversation is figuring out how that'll actually work, because it is still illegal at the federal level, which complicates this a lot. Right, right. Um, 
But listen, you are an urbanist. I'm going to throw a curveball here to you. When I was in California, it seemed like every other store was a weed store. What is the potential of this uh, to do to you know neighborhoods like yours, or to do to to uh, neighborhoods where retail has suffered because people are buying most of their stuff on Amazon now, et cetera? Is there any sense of of what this might mean? You know, this is kind of an interesting opportunity because a lot of retail stores closed during the pandemic, and so there are a lot of vacancies. There are certainly a fair number of vacant stores here in Silver Spring, and when medical marijuana was legalized there were restrictions on how many dispensaries you could have in a given area, right? There were two dispensaries in my neighborhood here in Silver Spring, one of which is like at the end of my street. I imagine in a scenario in which you were allowed to operate a storefront that sold or distributed weed in some form, there are certainly folks who are going to take advantage of the opportunity, and that could be a chance to fill some vacant storefronts that exist now. You know, one of the conversations that is happening around legal weed in Maryland is how can we ensure that, uh, in particular, Black-owned entrepreneurs and businesses get to benefit from this? Because historically, you know, it is Black people who disproportionately are the greatest number of weed-related arrests, right? Right. And those arrests are going to be expunged. The records are going to be expunged for when it was a possession-only arrest in the past. That's right. Also in Maryland, Wes Moore. It's going to be interesting because the outgoing governor of Maryland has been a subject of a lot of will he run for president kind of talk. And the incoming governor, I suspect, will eventually, uh, will quite soon become subject of that kind of talk because he's this incredible, inspiring figure. Yeah, I already saw a tweet about it yesterday. He is a really inspiring, handsome, charismatic person. I've met him exactly once, and he's one of those politicians where he clasps your hand in both hands and he looks in your eyes like he can see into your soul. And people eat that stuff up, right? It's also interesting because not only is he the first black governor in Maryland history and also the head of an administration with the first uh, non-white lieutenant governor and the first black attorney general, uh, he's also one of the youngest governors in the country right now. The youngest governor will be Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas. She's 40, then Wes Moore, and then Ron DeSantis, who, if you had told me he was 44, I would not have believed you. But these are also names that are sort of considered rising stars in their respective parties, and it sounds like Wes Moore might be joining them. That's right. And and we're in the region going to have, uh, you know, with Yunkin as well. I mean, this, it, this is a region not for... Not for a couple hundred years has it been a cradle of presidents, but um, it'll be the subject of a lot of that conversation, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think we'll get a lot of attention in 24 about this. So Moore won uh, pretty convincingly. He won by like 20, 25 points. The outgoing governor, Republican Hogan, uh, declined to endorse the Republican candidate, who was a uh, far-right election-denying Trump figure. but if you look at a map of Maryland, I mean, it's just kind of striking. The rural portions of the state still are red. The eastern shore, the southern counties, western Maryland. Yeah. You know, people, Maryland's slogan is American miniature. And if you look at an electoral map, it, it reads, right? I think what is interesting, though, is the Democrats kind of took a gamble on uh, the primaries. They spent money on ads for Dan Cox in the hopes that he would win the primary and he would be so extreme that he would, in fact, throw it to Westmore, which worked, right? Part of Larry Hogan's appeal is that he could cross political boundaries, right? You know, 
Larry Hogan got more votes in Montgomery County than the entire Eastern Shore. And that's part of why he won twice. Right, right. So meanwhile, on the other side of the Potomac, boy, there was a lot of TV ads and a couple of these Northern Virginia races in districts that had become Democratic held in the last uh, half decade or so. Um, in Northern Virginia, both of the endangered uh, or targeted uh, Democrats held, uh, notably uh, Abigail Spanberger, who represents a swath of the state that includes like a lot of uh, Prince William County. What happened there? It's a really interesting case, right? So the district was redistricted. Abigail Spanberger used to represent a district that was mostly like the middle part of the state and areas west of Richmond. And in fact, her predecessor was Dave Bratt, who was one of like Tea Party Republicans who swept in in the 2010s. And her new district includes like a little bitty chunk of Northern Virginia, Prince William County, Spotsylvania County, Frederick, which are a teeny bit more liberal. So I think that gave her an advantage. But there's another story there, which is a sort of growing Latino vote, right, particularly in Prince William County, where Yesley Vega, her, her opponent, was a county supervisor. And it's the similar sort of story we've seen in other parts of the country where the Republican Party has done a lot of outreach to Latino voters. Governor Yunkin did that a lot last year. Sometimes Democrats have, think, have taken it for granted. Uh, they prevailed this time, but I think it should be a warning for the future that they should not take, especially in a region as diverse as Northern Virginia, the votes of Latino and other immigrant communities for granted. Yeah, I think the other thing cooking is, you know, Virginia is a really, I mean, the right is pretty far right. And the left, which is basically Northern, a lot of Northern Virginia, represents a you know, a kind of blue place, which is mm -hmm. to say uh, a lot of those neighborhoods are pretty rich. So these are not places to like where, where you're going to like line them up against the wall, <laughs> line the capitalists against the wall or something. But they're places with 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 pretty tolerant cultural values, et cetera. And so that the divide, you know, with the candidate running against Spanberger, Yesley Vega, being in favor of, uh, you know, no exception abortion bans, stuff like that, that degree of difference is pretty striking. Yeah, it is the kind of comment that has brought down other Republicans and races over the past several years. And it that also, I think, helped really decide things for Abigail Spanberger. Like that quote taken out and put in campaign ads I saw every single morning for the past like three months watching the morning news uh, to the point where I could probably recite it in my sleep. Yeah. One of the things you probably didn't hear about if you were watching like CNN or something for election returns was the Arlington County Council. But, you know, actually, I think there was an issue there in the election that Matt Differenti uh, won um, about missing middle housing, which was actually so evocative of where the country's at right now. The, the question is basically your favorite subject. Are you going to uh, upzone some of the residential neighborhoods so you can put up uh, small multi-unit housing? In it, ultimately, the candidate who was sort of in the middle on that pulled through. What do you make of that? Right. You know, in, in Arlington, uh, similar to other parts of the region, there's been much ado about duplexes the past couple of years. The county has been looking at a proposal that would basically allow between up to two and up to eight homes on lots where you can only build a single family house now. It has been a lot of conversation. And Matt DeFerranti, who was the incumbent county board member was trying to take the middle position. He supported the missing middle proposal, but not as far as eight units per lot. Audrey Clement, his opponent, was strongly opposed to any kind of zoning changes. And she got a lot of support in those sort of wealthier northern parts of the county. 
And then you had a third candidate who was explicitly in support of upzoning and even more, who got a very small portion of the vote. It wasn't totally a referendum on missing middle. You know, county board elections are nonpartisan, so there's a whole lot of other things at play. But I think for supporters of more housing in Arlington, this might be viewed as a mandate for it's time to allow missing middle housing. In D.C., meanwhile, you know, we talked yesterday about the the local election here, but the national election, because of the weird status of D.C., has an impact on how we live our lives here. What kind of impact that'll be is up for grabs. But the super close, you know, even if, if we assume the Republicans do get a majority, I can't tell if that tightness of it will be good news or bad news for, for D.C. I think it's going to be great news for apartment landlords and Navy Yard. <laughs> How so? so? The stereotype is that's where a lot of the Trump staffers and right-wing congressional oh, right. staffers like to live because it's close to the hill and it's new. I'm curious if there is divided government between the House and the Senate, if it will make that much of a change for D.C. I just mean if if, if there's like a very close split in the House. And McCarthy doesn't have as much control over his caucus because any one or two members could bring everything crashing down. Something that's kind of easy for him to toss to the uh, the far right is like, oh, sure, like let's let's put in a measure to say, you know, all communists have to register before going to the bathroom in Washington, D.C. Or, or, you know, <laughs> something like that. Historically, unfortunately, it's been a thing that Democrats have kind of been willing to, to give on um, when uh, because it's it's easier to give that to the crazies uh, as they see it than to give something of you know national substance. So it could be like a perverse thing that the Republican uh, lack of success winds up making things more excruciating on the home rule question. I think that is a common theme is regardless of the uh, majority of the Republicans get there clearly out for blood before the election and now especially after the election with their disappointing results. <laughs> The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma, D.C. community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own. The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on-site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one- and two-bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. Visit thearborattacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A.com. All right, so let's talk about the commanders. Kevin Blackstone is here to talk with us. How you doing? Great. How about you? Good. Thank you for coming. D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine is filing a consumer protection lawsuit against the Washington commanders, Daniel Snyder, the NFL, and Commissioner Roger Goodell. He says those four entities colluded to deceive D.C. residents about the sexual harassment non-investigation into the team last year. The evidence shows Mr. Snyder was not only aware of the toxic culture within his organization, he encouraged it and he participated in it. With this lawsuit, we're standing up for D.C. residents who were repeatedly lied to and deceived. They have a right to know the truth about the companies 
they support with their hard-earned dollars, the commanders, Mr. Snyder, the National Football League, and Roger Goodell deprive them of this right. So I don't know if this like investigation is going to actually put a whole lot of fear into Snyder. Uh, but this constellation of investigations is uh, likely uh, at least part of the pressure mounting on uh, Dan Snyder and his wife, Tanya, to sell the team, uh, which is what I want to focus on today, because uh, in the week or so since they uh, revealed that they'd hired Bank of America to vet owners, uh, there's been a lot of little bits of news about who might be in the mix, um, which is what I want to talk about for our One of Us segment, which is the mystery future commander's owner. Sure. Who's who's in the mix, and and who, who who's your fantasy uh, candidate for the mix? <laughs> well, there are only so many people who can buy an NFL franchise. They're the most expensive sports franchises on the planet Earth, and this team that Dan Snyder purchased just before the turn of the the century cost him about eight hundred million dollars, and now it is valued at. billion and could sell for upwards of $7 billion. So even in Washington, D.C., the world's capital, you're hard-pressed to walk down the street and bump into somebody with a checkbook who who can buy this team. There are three people locally who can do it. One we know is for certain is Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, one of the richest men in the world, the owner of the Washington Post, where I collect a paycheck. So he can he can do it. His name's been mentioned. And the other two people locally who could do it uh, would be Ted Leonsis, who already owns the basketball franchises in this city, as well as the, uh, the the Washington Capitals hockey team. And then probably David Rubenstein, who, interestingly enough, owns the Magna Carta <laughs> and uh, is a billionaire a few times over. What do you think is more expensive, the, the Magna Carta or the commanders? <laughs> uh, I would say that... Um, uh, I, I would say that the Magna Carta is better kept than the Commanders. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll, we'll leave it at that, right? Um, and of course, he he has been said to have an interest in buying the Washington Nationals, who are up for sale in uh, concert with Ted Leonsis. So those are the the three people <clears throat> locally who have the ability to just just buy the team. And of those three uh, multi billionaires, I would prefer Jeff Bezos. He has the most money. His ownership of the Washington Post has been, as best I can tell, completely hands off. Um, And he writes checks for the human capital that make it possible for the Washington Post to be one of the finest um, uh, news gathering dissemination organizations on the planet. And I would assume that he would approach sports like that. Um, Ted Leonsis has got his own thing already. You know, make the Caps a championship team again. Make the Wizards a championship contender again. Make the Mystics a championship team again. He's got that on his plate. I don't think he needs anything anything more. Um, and David Rubenstein, he's a you know he's a Duke guy. He's done so much to to uh, uh, take care of um, our historical infrastructure in this in this town. Um, and uh, I, I think he'd be a he'd be a fine owner. But Bezos would be my number one pick. Why is Bezos apparently uh, being uh, joined in his bid by like Jay-Z and Matthew McConaughey? Doesn't he have the scratch to do it himself? Yeah, I mean, he he does. But I think he, you know, I think he might just be lured by star stardom that Mm -hmm. wants to be involved. 
you know, Jay-Z already has the ear of, of Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, um, and has been involved in sports ownership before, most notably, you know, with the Brooklyn Nets and his uh, ownership of the Barclays Center. Although I would say, you know, I'm not a champion for, um, for Jay-Z. I don't like the deal that built the Barclays Center and displaced so many uh, working class people in that neighborhood of which he and Beyonce played a role uh, and he doesn't have any connection to Washington, DC. So I don't, I don't champion his, his ownership. Matthew McConaughey, he's just, a, you know, he's a Texan who's a fan of the team, uh, which makes no sense. Um, I don't know, maybe he's going to play bongos at, at some, uh, at some halftime or something. So I'm not attracted to, to him, but you know, there are a number of, um, of uh, more interesting DC connected very well healed entertainment people who, who I think would, would be would be more attractive than than Jay-Z or Matthew McConaughey. Yeah man, I wish uh wish Snyder had been a, had turned out to be a better advertisement for like <laughs> local guy who who's, grew up with the team. He uh, never should have a had the owner. team. The <laughs> only reason that we are in this situation is because Jack Kent Cook, who could have just turned it over to one of his sons, refused to do so and put the team up for sale. And mm-hmm. this was the deal that came along that um, Snyder's deal that came along that seemed like a good thing at the time. But uh, obviously, it's, a, it's almost the worst thing that's ever happened in this team. I've also seen stuff about out of town owners, like people who just sort of co- seem to collect sports teams. What would you how would you feel about it being someone with that kind of profile? I think that Washington, D.C. is is big enough and this franchise is was golden enough Um to have local ownership. I'm born and reared in Washington, D.C., um, in a family that had season tickets to see this team play before I was born. My father grew up in Leedroy Park in the shadow of, of Griffith Stadium, where the team originally played. My only memory of this team is local ownership. The racist George Preston Marshall, who brought the team down here from mm-hmm. uh, from Boston, Jack Kent Cook, and now Dan Snyder. So I, I've, I've been accustomed to local ownership, and I think you know I just think that local ownership is better for a, a sports team than than having someone outside the community running the show. That's not to say it can't be done. Yeah, um, it, it can be done, and you know there's some people who are looking at the Washington Nationals right now who are not from here or have any particular connection to here. But uh, I, yeah, selfishly, I would prefer local ownership. You know, I think whoever gets it is going to have such a nice honeymoon. Um, oh, and, um, <laughs> absolutely. And, and that's actually a relevant thing because their first order of priority, I assume, is going to be to get a stadium built. Right. And, and, and Dan Snyder turned into such a despicable character that nobody around here felt that they could muster the political might to convince their community to stick more money in his pocket. And so that is a huge stumbling block. And as we know, the lease on the crumbling FedEx facility out in Largo, Maryland, runs out uh, in just a few years. So the clock is really, really ticking right now. Oh, boy, that um, the, the team put out a statement uh, after Carl Racine said he was going to have a statement. This statement was so ugly it's not the kind of statement I think you would make if you have any hope of getting the taxpayers to build you a stadium. 
Oh, absolutely not. It was a pile of a pile of bovine manure, um, <laughs> if ever there was one. I read that. And to have the timidity to drag Brian Robinson's name and shooting into this uh, was just just beyond the pale. For those of you who didn't read it, what it said was uh, basically, look, one of our players got shot in D.C. and D.C. has out of control violence and it's an out of control crime place. And doesn't the city attorney general have better things to do, which, you know, legally, no, he doesn't actually because he doesn't <laughs> right. prosecute crime. Um, but uh, but also was uh, not the kind of statement a, a true blue son of, a, of the city will give. It, it sounded like he doesn't much like the place. No, exactly. Um, all right. So speaking of grapes, we're going to move on to a section about low to the ground grapes. And I mean, really, literally low to the ground. There is a bill in the district to uh, decriminalize sidewalk vending. This has been a deal, particularly in the neighborhood Columbia Heights, uh, where uh, vendors say they've been harassed by the police, uh, subject to violence, et cetera, et cetera. Dan, you are a uh, a sidewalk man. <laughs> you and I, maybe our first conversation was about about uh uh, what makes uh, neighborhoods have more vibrant or less vibrant parks and sidewalks? Uh, what do you make of this? So it's been really remarkable to see on 14th Street in Columbia Heights, this really vibrant, lively, basically outdoor sidewalk market form over the past few years, right? In front of the mall where people will normally be going to Target and Best Buy and stuff. The challenge is it is pretty much unregulated, right? Anyone can come and set up a table, there can be some less savory activities going on. And also for someone trying to walk down the street, it can be really hard to navigate all of the different things that are going on, particularly for using a mobility device, a walker, a wheelchair, a stroller. And so there's sort of two things happening. You know, one is the the district wants to decriminalize sidewalk vending so the people who are just trying to make a living don't feel intimidated or aren't being unfairly harassed for just trying to do their thing. And then also figuring out, you know, how should a sidewalk look in a place like Columbia Heights, where there are lots of different parties with a claim to it? Yeah, so this, I think this is like, I remember when I first covered uh, city stuff, a restaurant would have to get a permit to have a sidewalk cafe. And people would say, you know, that is public property and we are turning it over to this private business. And that's terrible. And to me, it's like, you know, actually a neighborhood with a sidewalk cafe, that's kind of a nice thing. I enjoy that feeling, even if I'm not uh, getting to, to sip a drink in that sidewalk cafe. On the other hand, you know, cities pass regulations on stores in order to protect consumers, to protect labor, to protect safety. You do have to get permits to sell different kinds of food, to, again, in the name of public safety. So having like, I don't know, I guess it's like a balance. On the one hand, I really like the idea of vibrant street life. On the other hand, um, it seems... Uh, weird to have classes of, of people who are not subject to slash protected by uh, regulations. Yeah, I think decriminalization has to come first. You know, a lot of these folks who run the sidewalk markets are people of color. They're immigrants. They are people who may not have historically had great experiences with police or with mm -hmm. the government. And so first, I think you need to take that threat away that just you existing on the sidewalk will get you a ticket or tossed in jail and then start talking about, okay, how can we actually hold you accountable for using this this public space? Because um, you're totally right. No one wants to walk on an empty, dead sidewalk. But we want to make sure these folks are being taken care of before we start telling them how they're going to do it. All right. So there is a hearing about this on 
Wednesday at DC Council. Be there. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's all the time we've got today. Uh, Dan and Kevin, thank you so much for coming and hanging out. Um, always awesome to have you guys here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilbey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed this show, please tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and for heaven's sake, subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye.